Uh, welcome, uh, everyone. I know there are still big people coming in, and hope they find their seats uh, fairly uh, uh, discreetly. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, I just want to to open this conference. My name is Ulf Dostin, and I'm the lead organizer of the conference. Uh, today, uh, we are going to discuss the sustainability of the financial system. Have we done enough or even the right things to stabilize the financial system? We would not have organized this conference if we did not have the feeling that uh, we risk slipping into an unwarranted uh, complacency. The second rationale for the conference is the growing mismatch between an increasingly global market economy and globalized financial markets on one hand and the mainly national public orders on the other. We ask the question how we can bridge that gap and create conditions for an international rule of law in the common interest. This conference is co-organized by the Systemic Risk Center and the Center for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science here at LSE. We are very happy about the great interest and for the high-level speakers who are joining us today. But events as this one are not possible without proper funding. And we are grateful to the organizing centers for the funding of the event, and in turn the centers acknowledge the generous funding by the Japanese bank Mitsuhu, by the ESRC and others that has made this conference possible. And a special thanks from me to the organizing committee and to the event managers, Frankie Clark and Olivia Kelly, for their dedicated work. I will now give the floor to Malcolm Knight, who will chair the first session, which will discuss the fundamental question if banks create money for the right purposes. Malcolm Knight has a distinguished career at the Bank of International Settlement, the International Monetary Fund, the Bank of Canada, as well as in banking, most lately in Deutsche Bank, and in reinsurance. Most importantly, of course, he's a visiting professor of finance at the LSE. The floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, Ulf, and uh, welcome to session one. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me to be here today with three distinguished speakers, Lord Adair Turner, who will make the formal presentation for about 45 minutes. Um, Professor Yu Yang Dong, who uh, is a member of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences and will be a discussant. Uh, and uh, Charles Goodhart, who's left the podium, not because we had a falling out, but because he wants to very carefully scrutinize the Dare slides as he goes through to make sure there are no flaws. Um, Creating money for what purpose? Uh, I think all of us believe that we understand exactly what money is. But actually, the process by which it's produced is a very complicated one and involves, obviously, the, um, uh, the, uh, the production of debt 
by certain institutions in the, in the financial system. And the extent to which that done, that's done may not be socially optimal because it, it's uh, created on the basis of uh, private sector uh, incentives. And therefore, it's an element of regulation as well as uh, monetary control by the central bank. And uh, as you know, Adair Turner has uh, done a lot of thinking about this issue. And so, Adair, um, we're going to be very interested to uh, hear what you have to say. Let me just say that, as I think probably everyone in the room knows, Adair Turner has had uh, a very distinguished career in business, uh, in consulting, in public policy, and in academia. He became chairman of the uh, Financial uh, Services Authority um, just at the nadir of the financial crisis in September of 2008. He was a member of the Financial Stability Board and in that context played a very important role in the uh, reform program of the G20 to reform the global architecture of financial regulation. He's now a senior fellow of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, which is at the Center for Financial Studies in Frankfurt. And as you also know, he was elevated to a peerage uh, in 2005. So Adair, we look forward very much to your presentation. Malcolm, thank you very much, and uh, good morning, everybody. I'll just uh, hopefully these slides will suddenly emerge. Uh, there we are. Thank you. Uh, I noticed from uh, Ulf's uh, presentation that one of our sponsoring centres here uh, is the Centre for the Philosophy uh, of Natural and Social Science. Uh, and indeed, we have in front of us for this first session what might appear a very philosophical uh, rather than practical question, which is creating money uh, for what purpose? But I think it is incredibly valuable for us to go back to the absolute fundamentals of money and debt, because I think unless we do that, we really cannot understand some of the practical issues of regulation and policy with which we have struggled uh, in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis. Now, I have not produced for today a, a text of, of this lecture, uh, but there are two major lectures uh, that I gave, uh, which you can see on this page here, one given in St Stockholm uh, in September and one in Frankfurt uh, about four weeks ago, which set out uh, the thinking which is behind this. Uh, uh, so uh, if there are uh, specific issues which, as I go relatively fast through the main points of my argument today, uh, you think, uh, oh, I'm not sh quite sure I agree with that. Well, you will agree with it uh, once you have read uh, the underlying uh, literature. Um, I would like to structure my comments around four points. First of all, I'm going to make a set of very theoretical points, but I do assert we need to get that theory straight uh, in order to uh, think clear. I'm then going to talk about empirical. Uh, what has happened over the last 50 years in terms of rising leverage, and I'm going to suggest that that defines for us what I call a policy conundrum. I'm going to suggest a resolution of that policy conundrum which gets to 
What do we use credit for? The different purposes of credit uh, within an economy. And then I'm going to set out uh, some possible implications uh, for public policy. So let me begin with theory. I think it is absolutely fundamental to understand that banks do not intermediate already existing money. They create money and credit ex nihilo de novo. When a bank gives a loan to, let us say, an entrepreneur and puts onto the asset side of their balance sheet loan to entrepreneur, they put into the entrepreneur's deposit account the money. And at that moment, it's quite clear that they have created credit and money. Now, there may be some constraints on how much they can create, uh, deriving on whether they need to keep reserve assets at the central bank or whether they need to keep equity, but quite clearly, they create uh, credit and money. The crucial thing which creates that credit and money, that creates that purchasing power, is maturity transformation. If the tenor of the deposit was exactly the same as the tenor of the loan, nothing would change. If they're all instantaneous, it wouldn't achieve anything. It's the fact that I lend you money for a year and you have instantaneous uh, money available that creates purchasing power. We create credit, we create money, and we create uh, purchasing power. And the issue of to whom that purchasing power is given and what they use it for is therefore fundamental. Now, out of that derives the fact that we are dealing with two things. We're dealing with the creation of money and purchasing power, but we also are dealing with the creation of an ongoing debt contract. So what I'm going to suggest is that it's important for us to understand the consequences of this by first of all thinking about what constrains and how do we think about uh, the creation of purchasing power within the economy? And then secondly, what is the consequence that the way we've done it is by creating a set of ongoing debt contracts? Now, these are closely related issues, but I think if we try and think about one and then the other, uh, you'll see that uh, it's useful to separate them, uh, even though one then has to combine them again. So to begin with credit, money, and purchasing power. I believe that it is useful to think about that as being one of three means by which we can achieve adequate demand growth in an economy. So I start by saying, suppose you had a pure metallic money system, where the amount of money, and therefore potentially purchasing power within the economy, is constrained by the supply of gold, or the supply of silver. You might have an environment in such a situation, and it was the situation in the late 19th century, where the amount of aggregate purchasing power in the economy, the amount of aggregate nominal demand, nominal GDP, might be constrained by how much of this stuff was dug up of the ground, out of the ground. And in such an environment, it might be the case that in order to have real growth within a fixed nominal GDP amount, you might have to have downward flexibility of wages and prices. And again, that is, broadly speaking, the late 19th century British environment, roughly stable nominal GDP and a slow downward flexibility of prices uh, and real wage, uh, uh, prices and, and nominal wages. 
Now, you might say, what is wrong with that? And various economists over the years have said, no, that's what we want. We want an absolutely fixed money supply, and we'll deal with the problem of how we get uh, real growth by having downward flexibility of, of prices. But broadly speaking, most of modern economics has gravitated to the belief that there are problems with that, that it's difficult to get downward flexibility of wages and prices without there being problems, and that broadly speaking, we are sensible to run our economies with, for instance, nominal GDP growing at, say, 5% per annum, so that we can accommodate both a 2 to 2.5% real growth rate and maybe a 2 to 2.5% price increase. If that is the case, then pure metallic money may not be an adequate answer to how you get that growth of nominal demand. The other problem with a pure metallic money system is that you can literally have hoarding. You can have a situation where if people don't want to spend money, they literally put the gold coins under the bed and they don't spend it in a way which isn't true or isn't true in the same extent when money takes a deposit form. So I'm suggesting there can be a problem within an economy of a lack of nominal demand in a pure metallic money system and that there are three ways we can think about how you deal with that. One of which is pure fiat money creation. Each year the state runs a small deficit which it funds by printing money. A lot of people at that stage say, oh, God, how awful, how terrible, uh, Weimar, um, uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, but I will just remind you that uh, Milton Friedman, not known as a mad inflationist, uh, in an article in 1948 uh, said this is by far clearly the most sensible way we ought to proceed. We ought every year to have small uh, unfunded uh, fiscal deficits and we ought to stimulate nominal demand by precisely the amount uh, that is optimal for the economy. So it is possible uh, it can be done. The second way is through private bank or credit extension uh, or other credit extension in the way that I described earlier uh, and the third is funded fiscal deficits. And just very briefly, I think it's useful for us to just get the theory right. When we run pure fiat money unfunded fiscal deficits, we achieve an increase in nominal demand by both putting new money in the system and by increasing the net supply of private net financial assets. I, the financial system, the private system, has more financial assets in total. Private credit and money creation is interesting because you create new money but you also create future private debt. You don't actually increase private net financial assets because for every bit of money, there is a bit of debt, but by maturity transformation, you still stimulate the economy. Funded fiscal deficits are interesting. They don't create new money, but they do create new private financial assets. The financial sector has more assets offset by a future public liability to pay back the debt, which may or may not, in different circumstances, create a Ricardian equivalence effect, which offsets the stimulative effect of uh, the funded fiscal deficits. But all of these ways I'm suggesting we should think about as different ways by which you stimulate demand and overcome the problems of, that might arise if you had no way of stimulating nominal demand. Now, I'm going to focus entirely on the next page on the advantages and disadvantages of pure fiat money and private credit and money creation, and then obviously focus on the private credit and money creation itself. I think it's useful to think about the advantages and disadvantages in the following fashion. Fiat money creation is always possible. And it is possible, if you had an absolute benevolent dictator, to imagine that each year they would say, I am going to run a fiscal deficit 
precisely optimal to increase the nominal GDP precisely in line with what is socially optimal, and I'm going to allocate this in a perfectly optimal fashion. You can imagine that as being the case. The disadvantages derived from the fact that we just fundamentally don't trust politicians and authorities to do that. We're worried that once they've realised it's possible, they'll want to do it in large amounts all the time rather than in a small amount. They'll want to do it to buy uh, political favours for the constituencies for whom they want to vote. They'll occasionally go mad and create huge quantities of hyperinflation. So broadly speaking, although... If we were absolutely trusted the political system, I believe, along with Irving Fisher and Henry Simons and early Milton Friedman, it is the way you would logically go. There are a set of political reasons why we have created an enormous taboo against even thinking about that, private, that fiat money creation route. So instead we've said we've got private credit creation. And the idea we have there is that the good news is that this is disciplined by market disciplines. It is a private sector which lends that money to people and therefore hopefully it allocates it to useful purposes. But it clearly raises the question, is that true? Is it allocated for useful purposes? And is the amount created optimal? And what are the implications of the fact that this is a way of creating new money and demand which brings with it a set of debt contracts for the future, uh, debt contracts which are bound to have some consequences. So one of the crucial questions here is, okay, the private banking sector can create money and credit. This helps to stimulate nominal demand. Suppose we want nominal demand to go up by roughly 5%. How do we know that the private credit system creates just that amount of nominal demand which is consistent with what we want? Now, Knut Vixell, a famous Swedish economist, 100 years ago, 110 years ago, uh, in his book Interest and Prices, thought he had the answer to that problem. Uh, Knut Vixell's Interest and Prices is a book which I do really think uh, uh, all uh, undergraduate economists should read again, like they should read uh, a lot of the classics, which uh, I know in most undergraduate economics now are not read at all. Um, But he dealt with the fundamental problem We've got a banking system. It can credit and debit, you know, credit and money. Well, why doesn't it create just huge amounts? And his resolution to it was as follows. He said, well, the borrowers will have in mind that it's only sensible to borrow the money if the price of that is less than or equal to the rate of return on their investment projects. And the rate of return on their investment projects, or the projects that we choose to do, is determined by some fundamental features within the economy, the natural rate of productivity growth, and by the balance between how much people want to save and how much they want to consume. And he had a concept that there was an idea called the natural rate of interest, which was the interest rate which would exist uh, in uh, an equilibrium given technological features and saving preferences, and that as long as the central bank kept the money rate of interest equal to the natural rate of interest, that this thing would all work in balance. 
and that banks would create credit and money in precisely the right amount. And one of the crucial questions we have to ask when we think about the policies that we require to control the banking and money creation system is whether Vixel's resolution of the problem, it'll be okay uh, as long as uh, the money rate of interest equals the natural rate of interest, uh, is that an adequate resolution? And I'm going to come back to that later. I now, however, skipping the next two slides, want to flip to the other way of thinking about this problem, which is the ongoing debt contracts that are created, and make some points both about the debt contracts which are created by banks, but also by non-banks, the debt contracts that could exist if you decided to lend money to that entrepreneur over there, and how we think about the balance within the economy of which contracts are done in a debt form and which contracts are done in an equity form. Now, there is a lot of people who have written in economics who basically argued that if we had an all-equity economy, uh, it would be a more smoothly operating economy. There's a wonderfully uh, neat little article by the uh, Italian economist Luigi Einaudi uh, uh, writing in about 1947. The article is just called in Italian debiti and English debts and it's only about five pages long and it says an all equity economy would clearly be a smoothly operating economy but the fact is human beings can't deal uh, with the uncertainty of every contract being a equity contract. They want the certainty both in their wage contracts and in their financial contracts of the apparent certainty that they are going to get fixed flows of revenue rather than simply partnership shares uh, in business projects. And indeed a significant body of finance theory has been developed which explain why we have debt contracts. And the core of it is this idea that a debt contract is non-state contingent. I have lent you money, you pay me back an interest rate which is not contingent on the future state of the world. It is not contingent on whether your business project uh, does well or not. And there is a body of finance theory which explains why that is good for capital mobilization because it overcomes a problem which uh, uh, Robert Townsend described as costly state verification, the difficulty I have in working out both ex-ante and ex-post whether a business project is profitable or not, the difficulty that I have as an investor that I am somewhat powerless uh, relative to the entrepreneur taking my money and using it, we get round that by writing a non-state contingent contract uh, which basically says, well, you pay me the money uh, independent of whether the project is successful or not. There is a strong body of, 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 of thesis uh, that says that we need these contracts in order to achieve the mobilization of capital. And I think, I think that is compelling. I think there's an argument both in theory and in empirics that we would not have achieved the mobilization of capital of the 19th century industrial revolution, the development of the railways, the development of canals, if we had not had bonds as well as equities. If we'd simply relied on people being willing to make equity investments, we wouldn't have got there going so fast. And there is a body of empirical evidence well set out, for instance, in a overall literature survey uh, by Ross Levine in 2004 that says, well, let's look at it empirically. Is it the case that when you have more credit to GDP, uh, you get economic growth? And broadly speaking, uh, in the pre-crisis period, there was a strong belief that bank credit to GDP, if anything, was clearly positive. So Ross Levine prevents empirical results that says... 
I do some scatter diagrams, I do some regressions, and out of it I am able to say, if India in 1960 had had credit to GDP of 30%, not 10%, it would subsequently have grown faster. So broadly speaking, we ended up with a positive point of view of debt contracts. So we ended up really, I think, with a pre-crisis orthodoxy which had two elements. One on the monetary and macro side, a central bank monetary theory hypothesis that low and stable inflation was not just desirable but was sufficient as an objective because it was believed you really didn't have to think about the details of the financial system. Because if you were hitting low and stable inflation, you knew that the financial system, whatever it was doing, was in balance. Because if you were hitting low and stable inflation, you would only do that if your money rate of interest was in line with your natural rate of interest in a fundamentally Vixellian sense. And if that was the case, it followed by definition that the financial system must be creating just exactly the right amount of credit. So broadly speaking, a point of view that we don't have to pay much attention to what's going on there. Uh, that phrase, money, credit and banking, play no meaningful role, is a quote from Mervyn King in October 2012, when he pointed out that in both the new classical models and the new Keynesian models, which have dominated monetary economics, money, credit and banking play no meaningful role. Meanwhile, over on the finance theory side of academic silos, we developed the belief that debt contracts are essential, we've got a general confidence that free markets will produce an optimal balance, and insofar as there were concerns, they were fundamentally uh, about, well, what would happen if you had an economy which didn't have enough credit rather than too much debt credit? But we ended up in the crisis of 2008, and I think there's a reasonable part of view that we ended up in the crisis of 2008 because we created too much of the wrong sort of debt. So this rather benign point of view of these two elements of orthodoxy turned out to be wrong. And since the crisis, a number of writers have put forward arguments that basically say, look, the system can create too much debt. Steve Cicchetti of the BIS has developed an argument, an empirical argument, that the relationship between debt to GDP and growth is not linear and limitless, it's an inverse U. That yes, it would be better if India had somewhat higher credit to GDP, but you can have uh, too much, that there is, uh, as I say, an inverse U. Uh, Taylor and Schulerich, Alan Taylor and Maurice Schulerich, have done some fantastic work on leverage and showed the dramatic increases in leverage and have said there really is no evidence at all that once you go beyond the sort of leverage that rich developed countries reached 50 years ago, that further increases in leverage have been positive for growth at all. And I have found that evidence compelling. I believe that we have a system which will create too much debt and credit left to itself. And I think we have to recognize the problems with debt in both the upswing and the downswing of the cycle. In the upswing of the cycle, the problem is that debt contracts fool us. The very fact that they are non-state contingent, that the mode of the frequency distribution of returns is that you get all your money back, 
creates an environment where you can believe that the mode is the whole of the frequency distribution of possible returns. And so we have the processes which Minsky and Hayek explored of the way that you can have overinvestment cycles. You have this very fine uh, thesis from Andre Schleifer of local thinking, focusing only on the mode of the frequency distribution. We have the ability of us to lend money, the free market system, to lend money where there isn't a reasonable expectation of return. And as Schleifer puts it, if you look at what happened with the creation of the credit securities manufactured out of subprime mortgages, many of those, quote, owed their very existence to neglected risk. There was a breakdown in the risk. We overcreate in the upswing. And then in the downswing, we have a problem. And those problems are best described in wonderful classic article, Irving Fisher's uh, debt deflation article of 1933. And we can think about them under three categories. First, we have bankruptcy and default. It is precisely because debt contracts are non-state contingent that they don't respond to downturns in the economy in a smooth fashion. They occur in a jumpy fashion with rigidities with fire sales. And I know this is something that Charles has focused a lot on, the almost complete lack in our dominant models of the economy, dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models, of any concept of bankruptcy or default. Secondly, we have the problem of rollover need and impaired lending capacity. If you have an equity contract, if I put money into your business and things turn down, maybe next year I won't give you new money as a new equity investment, but at least I don't get the money back. You've got the money permanently. An equity investment is perpetual. But a debt contract has a specific term and it needs to be rolled over. So if something goes wrong with the capacity of the new lending machine, the banking machine, uh, then we have a problem. And finally, we have the problem of debt overhang. That if people have been investing in the upswing, the exuberant upswing of the cycle, and suddenly feel shocked into a lack of confidence and worried about the future, they suddenly become aware that they are highly leveraged. And if they're a company... They hit the brakes in terms of investment. If they're a household, they hit the brakes in terms of of consumption. And that can produce a dramatic slowdown of the economy. And I think that debt overhang effect is absolutely fundamental to why we have such a low... Uh, such a slow and weak recovery from the recession. So I think there is a strong hypothesis to be made that... There are two problems with debt, one of which relates to the pace of the growth of debt and the other of which to the level. That the pace of the growth of the debt, when it is very fast, that is a very good forward indicator of the fact that we are likely to have crisis. And that once we have crisis, it is the level of debt to GDP, the level of private debt to GDP, which is the problem. And that the higher it is, the more you are going to have the problems in particular of rollover and debt overhang. Let me now turn to the empirics, what I call the empirics and a policy conundrum. So I've argued that the system can create too much debt. It created a hell of a lot in the 50 years before the crisis. I mean, broadly speaking, the stylized fact you can think of is that for 20 years or so before the crisis... We've got into an environment where nominal GDP tends to grow at about 5% per annum, and in most advanced economies, private credit grew at about 10 to 15% per annum. You can see it here for the UK and US on this chart. It bobs around year by year, but 
the credit growth is rarely below the nominal GDP growth. On average, it's higher, and on average, it's higher by something like 5 to 10 percentage points. So credit is going faster than nominal GDP. So if we put credit over nominal GDP, our numerator is going faster than our denominator, and our leverage is going up. Top line here, well, both lines here, taken from uh, Carmen Reinhardt and Ken Rogoff's uh, latest article, and the top line shows advanced economy, private domestic credit as a percent of GDP, and from the early 1950s, it's just gone up and up and up, from about 50% to about 180%. Their figures for emerging economies I'm a little bit surprised on, uh, because they show, and some other people show, it's still going up to 2010, but if we extended that to 2012, the emerging line would now be shooting up as well, and it would fundamentally be shooting up because of what is happening in China, and I'm sure that Yong Ding will talk about that, where total social finance, which is a broad measure of credit to the economy, has gone from 130% of GDP in 2008 to 200% uh, and still rising. So credit grows faster than nominal GDP. We have the situation where our pre-crisis path of nominal GDP was about 4 to 5%. Suppose that was optimal, 2% real growth, 2% inflation. But our pre-crisis path of credit growth was 10 to 15%. And not only was it, but it sort of appears that it needed to be because central banks were moving at interest rates, which worked through the banking system. So... Presumably, if they'd raised interest rates to slow credit growth, that would have meant slower nominal GDP growth, which would either have meant inflation below target or real growth below a potential. So we seem to face some sort of conundrum. We seem to need CDOT, growth of credit, faster than NGDP growth, uh, the growth of uh, NGP, in order to achieve reasonable target growth in nominal GDP, but it produces instability and post-crisis recession. This I describe as the conundrum. Do we face that? Because if we face that, if this is inherent, then, as Minsky put it, we do not have an equilibrium in a monetary economy as in against a real exchange seed and corn economy. We simply don't have a stable system. Now, in my Frankfurt speech, I argued that there are a set of reasons why this phenomenon occurs and that they are not inherent and that it is possible for us to have a stable uh, economy in which credit grows in line with nominal GDP, but that the core to understanding how we do that and why this relationship exists is to understand different categories uh, of credit, uh, that this money, this credit and money, is allocated in ways which have different economic purposes and different consequences. Now, if you go back to the literature I referred to earlier, to Ross Levine's Empirics, Robert Townsend on costly state verification, what they always describe credit doing is the following. They always describe savings by the household sector lending to the business sector to make a choice between alternative capital investment projects. And indeed, not only they do that, but I can tell you, because I've had a researcher looking at this, if you look at almost any undergraduate economics textbook or most advanced economics textbooks and most of the literature, again and again, when we describe the financing and banking system, we assume that credit is extended to businesses 
to finance investment. And indeed, people who wrote very insightfully about the problems of it, like Minsky and Hayek, also assumed that as well. But actually, although that is part of what credit can do, it can also do other functions as well. We can extend credit to finance increased consumption. That could be because someone is logically rebalancing consumption during the life cycle within a permanent income budget constraint, or it could be because they're a very impatient person who is desperately trying to spend money today and really can't afford that debt. It can derive from poorer people, impatient people, or logical optimizers across the life cycle. We have finance of new capital investment. That, of course, can be in real estate. Real estate can be new capital investment or non-real estate or human capital. And we can have finance of the purchase of existing assets. I lend money to you for you to borrow a painting which already exists or, crucially, a house, a piece of land which already exists. And if we actually look empirically, we find that only a small proportion of all lending in advanced economies takes the form on which the uh, literature almost entirely focuses. Now, it's difficult to be precise because lending, any particular loan, can be performing more than one of those previous functions. If I lend money to you in order to buy a house, we can think of that as simultaneously a form of within the life cycle consumption smoothing and as the leverage purchase of an existing asset. Um, commercial real estate loans can be simultaneously and in a conjoint mix uh, buying money to invest in land which already exists but also by uh, borrowing money uh, to build something which is a new investment. But overall, I think it is reasonable to assert that while we tell an economic story which describes all investment, all borrowing funding new investment, something like 15% of new credit in rich advanced societies is actually doing that. And the majority of credit is performing other functions. Those other functions, I think, are fundamental to our phenomenon of rising credit intensity of growth. In particular, and they are fundamental to the problems of instability. Let's look at the issue of lending money against existing assets. And the example I would give is the mortgage credit boom in Britain before the 2008 crisis. Unlike in Ireland and Spain, where their residential and commercial real estate booms involved large construction booms, we had an enormous credit and asset price boom, but with relatively little new construction. It was fundamentally within the existing assets. Now, we know from Hayek and Minsky that you can have over-investment cycles and credit cycles even when there is new investment, but my assertion is you're even more likely to get them when what you're doing is borrowing money to buy existing assets, because you're borrowing money to buy existing assets, and almost the only thing that can give is the price. The increase in the price validates in the mind of both the borrower and the, uh, the lender that borrowing and lending money was some a good thing. It increases their apparent net worth. It increases both their economic ability to borrow and lend and their motivation to borrow and lend in the cycle which is set out here. The net result is that credit against real estate is not just part of the story of financial instability. It is again and again and again the central story of financial instability. The iron law of banking is that somewhere or the other, 
Somewhere in the world, every 15 years, one or other commercial banking system goes completely mad lending money to commercial real estate. So we have this fundamental driver of credit uh, to existing assets. And I think that helps explain a rising credit intensity of growth which doesn't show up in an increase in nominal demand to which the central bank responds through the interest rate. Because while it is possible that when we get credit against existing assets driving up the price, that that might feed through to new investment through a sort of Tobin's Q type effect, or might feed through to new consumption through a wealth effect. Those effects are not fully proportional. They're not fully pari pursue. It is possible, I assert, for us to have a cycle in which we have more credit against existing real estate, an increase in the price of that existing real estate. We have more credit, we have more money balances, we have more wealth. But we don't see that showing up pari pursue in an increase, a short-term increase in nominal demand to which the central bank responds with interest rates. But we are building up a huge problem when the cycle changes, which is the problem of the debt overhang. I think we also have, but I'll be much briefer on this, a potential problem with the element of lending, which is, a, uh, which is consumption. And I think here we have a driver of the credit intensity of growth, which is linked to increasing inequality. I don't think Keynes was right to assert that as we get richer on average, we have a problem of secular stagnation deriving from an average low marginal propensity to save. I don't think that has been empirically held out. But I do think it is the case that within any society at any one time, richer people have a higher marginal propensity to save than poorer people. As a result, if you have, as we have had for the last 20 years, a dramatic increase in inequality, we can have a problem where you have a desire to save, an increase in savings not matched by an increase in investment, which would have produced a problem, a deflationary impetus over the last 20 years, but for the phenomenon that fundamentally the rich deposited their money in the banks, which lend money to subprime mortgages to make up for deficiencies uh, of income. I am therefore asserting overall, just to sum up, that there are three things, I'll mention the third in a minute, three things which explain the rising credit intensity of growth. They are lending money against existing assets. They are rising inequality and an increasing amount of credit extended for consumption. Uh, and they are also the phenomenon of global current account imbalances, where we have at global level a group of countries which have been running large surpluses and where if those surpluses are not matched by equity or real property claims against the rest of the world, they are bound to be balanced uh, by credit claims against the world. So we have a set of drivers of an increasing credit intensity of growth, rising credit to GDP, uh, without that showing up before the crisis in an excessive level of nominal GDP growth, but which still gives us a problem. Because although that problem doesn't show up in nominal GDP and inflation before the crisis, once the crisis has occurred, once asset prices begin to fall, once banks are impaired, once people feel over-leveraged, we have a downswing. I think the fundamental failure which went wrong in central bank thesis before the crisis was that once we realized that money aggregates were not good forward indicators of short to medium term inflation, 
we assumed that balance sheet aggregates didn't matter at all. Actually, what we ought to be believing is that credit aggregates leverage matters as a forward indicator of deflation, not as a forward indicator of inflation because of the downswing effects. The big problem in the downswing of the debt overhang effect is we really don't know how to get rid of leverage in an economy. We simply know how to shift it around the economy. In particular, we know how to shift it from the private sector to the public sector. So if you look at Richard Koo's analysis of what happens in Japan in 1990 when the extraordinary credit and asset price boom pops in 1990, you have a whole load of corporates who feel themselves over-leveraged, who are trying to deleverage, who are cutting investment, who are putting an, in, a deflationary impetus into the economy. Public deficits rise as a naturally offsetting response to that, and indeed a necessary response to that, but with the inevitable consequence that public debt to GDP goes up. And broadly speaking, once you create excessive private debt, and once you get to the crisis, all that we manage to do post-crisis is shift the leverage around from the private to the public sector, or indeed from one country to another. In a sense, the rise of China's credit to GDP is simply a natural consequence of the deleveraging in the advanced economies because it is the Chinese policy response in 2009 to what were they going to do about the fact that the crisis in the West uh, was driving a potential uh, deflation uh, and depression uh, in China. This is the pattern that we get uh, post-crisis. Uh, we've seen it in Japan, and we now see it everywhere. Essentially, what is going on at the moment is that for every percentage point fall in private <coughs> leverage to GDP, we get a more than percentage increase in public leverage to GDP. But all we do is shift the, uh, shift the, uh, uh, the leverage around. We don't get rid of it. Um, so what does that tell us if we go back to the advantages and disadvantages of fiat money and private credit? I think what we have to realize with private credit is that although it looked in Vixel's definition that he'd solved the problem, and although it looks as if it has advantages because the allocation is determined by market disciplines and because Vixel said the right amount will get created as long as we keep the policy interest rate in line with the natural interest rate, I think we have more fundamental problems with private credit creation than we realized before the crisis. We have the danger that you could have very significant market misallocation. We can have overinvestment cycles, and we can have existing asset price cycles. Does keeping the policy rate in line with the natural interest rate, Vixel's solution, does that answer the problem of how we get an optimal quantity of credit? Unfortunately, no. And the reason why it's unfortunately no is there isn't one natural rate of interest. The natural rate of interest, if you define it as the interest rate in the mind of the borrower, which will determine how much they borrow, is heterogeneous through time and heterogeneous through sector and through category of lending. What I mean by that is... Once, somebody have, once a group of people have become convinced that they are in the middle of a commercial real estate boom where they anticipate the prices will go up by 15% per annum for the next three years, 
Shifting your interest rate from 5 to 5.5% is going to make no difference at all in the short term to that credit and asset price boom. And shifting it from 5 to 10% is probably going to do terrible things to the non-real estate sector of the economy long before you slow down the the commercial real estate boom. We have a heterogeneous uh, interest rate elasticity of response. Let me finally then say what are the implications of this. I think we need to understand that in order to get stable growth, in order to answer Minsky's question of do we have an equilibrium in a monetary economy, there are some things that we need to do which go way beyond financial regulation and central banks. I think if we don't reduce inequality or reduce the pace of the increase in inequality, we have a fundamental driver of credit intensity in our economies, which is problematic. I think easy thing to say that, and even easier to say and still more difficult to do is the next one. I do think we have a fundamental problem of current account imbalances between surplus and deficit nations, which one has to address in order not to have another fundamental driver of credit intensity and unstable growth. But I think we also need an integrated set of monetary, macro, prudential and fiscal policies to lean against too much of the wrong sort of debt. And let me simply end with four thoughts on what those are. What is it that we have to do to constrain too much of the wrong sort of debt? I think the really difficult one is that the implication of what I'm saying is that central banks and macroprudential regulators have to be concerned about the level of debt as well as the pace of growth of debt. That they have to, as it were, buy into Steve Cecchetti's idea that our function here is an inverse U, that there is some level of private debt to GDP beyond which we are asking for future problems. The difficulty is... I find it very difficult to tell you whether that level is 80 or 90 percent or 100 percent. And after the experience of Reinhardt and Rogoff on the public debt side, I'd be a little bit careful of pilling uh, my uh, reputation at one level. But sometimes in economics, we can have a high degree of confidence about the shape of a function that we are facing an inverse U, even if we cannot be precise about what point it is. And I think this is a crucial area for future economic uh, exploration. I think the second point I'm making is I think we've got to realise that the allocation of credit which will arise as a result of free market decisions will not be socially optimal. That there is an externality of lending against real estate which goes up in price and creates instability effects, which will never be captured by private assessments of logical risk weights. And therefore, I think we have to, as regulators, as central banks, set different risk weights, for instance, for real estate lending, higher risk rates than would arise from the internal ratings of private banks. Thirdly, I think we have to think, and of course these are applied in many emerging economies already, about borrower constraints on lending as well as lender constraints on lending, things like loan-to-value, loan-to-income ratios. And fourthly, I think it is an open debate as to whether we need institutions, banks, which we license to make sure that they dedicate themselves solely to the activity which our textbooks suggest the whole banking system is solely dedicated to. We have a set of textbooks and papers which simply assume that what the banking system does is lend money for alternative business investment projects. We have a banking system which, left to itself, 
does that to about 15%. Do we need banks like KFW in Germany, which are deliberately focused on that particular slice of credit activity? Those are my thoughts. Thank you very much. Thank you, Adair, for a very rich uh, presentation, which draws on a body, a very long-standing body of deep thinking about credit and debt and produces some very interesting uh, conclusions. We now have two uh, people who are very well qualified to be discussants of this fine paper. And I'm going to call first on Yu Yong Ding. I said that, uh, that Yong Ding was uh, a member of the uh, Chinese Academy Someone of Social help? Sciences. He's also an, an advisor to the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs, the Planning Commission, former Director General of the um, World Economics and, and Politics uh, Institute in China, and probably one of the most respected commentators on monetary and exchange rate affairs in China. So, Professor Yu, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, Adele gave a very, very excellent uh, uh, presentation. My ambition is much smaller. I just want to talk uh, four issues. Number one, why uh, China's uh, uh, M2 over GDP ratio is so high? Why China's uh, credit over GDP ratio is so high? Why China's uh, social uh, finance over GDP ratio is so high? So I try to uh, give some explanations to, uh, to support Adele's argument. Second, uh, I think uh, I want to argue uh, central bank's failure in, con in control money supply. I mean, mainly uh, M0 and M1 is key for the loose control of uh, uh, assets uh, prices. Third, I want to uh, explain uh, why uh, China's uh, social uh, finance uh, has been increasing, increasing rapidly. At the same time, the share of uh, China's credit over GDP ratio has been dropped with these other forms of uh, finance. Lastly, I want to mention the danger China is facing in terms of uh, financial stability. I prepared some, uh, some, some quite complicated uh, <laughs> photos, but, uh, 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 pictures, but perhaps uh, I would not have uh, enough time to explain. Here, I just want to uh, tell you my view. Uh, why chance M2 is so high? I, you know, uh, money has two basic functions. One is uh, a means of uh, exchange. Right? I want to buy something, buy products. So I give money to you, you give goods to me. The second one is uh, to, concede, to concede the purchasing power to another guy. Okay, this is a, a credit, lend and borrowing and so on. And in, in China, because the Chinese are big savers, we save a lot. Even we have one, we have $100 income, then perhaps we'll spend 50, even for old guys. Everybody wants to save, save a lot. So here, you can see that. I make distinction between M1 as a means of, uh, uh, means of exchange, 
and uh, deposit. Actually, deposit is M2 minus M1. So this is a, 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 a promissory note guaranteed by banks. So suppose the bank extend loans in terms of working capital credit. So A is an economic entity, got, uh, say, certain amount of M1. Then he spent this M1, this M1. So he got the products from B. So you see the uh, original arrow. So A got the products, B got money, M1. If there isn't a bank, then the B may use the M1 to buy products from C. Then C use M1 to buy product from D and D from A. So there's a circulation. Then the money go back to bank. So vis-a-vis -vis working capital uh, uh, credit, money uh, uh, repaid, money disappeared, okay. And this is a, a situation without a banking system. But if there's a bank, so the B is a saver. B does not want to use money to buy products from C. And C is investor. C does not have enough money. So B put money into the bank. So the deposit. Deposit is M2 minus M1. So immediately, we have a, a broad money, M1 plus deposit, this is M2. So if economy, there's very large sector people who save a lot, at the same time, there are lots of people, they want to invest, but they don't have money. So of course, there's creation of deposit. Uh, on the other side of a balance sheet of a bank, there's a credit. So it's not difficult to explain why in China, for so many years, China's M2 OGP ratio is so high compared with other countries. I think the most important reason is China is a high-saving country. So over the past 20 years or 25 years until recently, very high M2 OGP ratio is not really something dangerous. It's something which shows the strength of Chinese economy. Actually, in early two, uh, in early 80s, me and many other economists predicting disaster coming because we have such high M2 OGP ratio. But instead, nothing happened. Chinese economy grew very rapidly. This is the first point. Why China has such high M2 OGP ratio? Of course, if you have very high M2 OGP ratio, certainly, naturally, you have very high uh, credit OGP ratio, even though these two concepts are not the same. So this is the first point. Uh, second point, um, central bank's uh, uh, responsibility. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, no. I, I, in order to save time, I, I will not uh, explain this. Otherwise, I don't have enough time. And I think I, I jump to another uh, maybe interesting, uh, interesting uh, question for you, for you guys to listen. And everybody is talking about Chinese uh, shadow banking system. Then when you are talking about shadow banking, you think about American shadow banking and so on and so forth. But in China, the situation is rather difficult. Different. Uh, okay, this is one example. One example. And usually, uh, sorry, usually here, sorry, over there, that corner, Bank B, that's Bank B. Bank B can uh, accept deposit. Then Bank B can lend money to these enterprises. Very simple, right? Very simple. But in China, in order to put constraints on the activities of our banks, 
for the safety, the sake of the safety, lots of regulation and so on, so forth. So this uh, bank B cannot uh, attract deposit and, uh, and make credit to these enterprises. Now, uh, what's going on? Now we have uh, one, two, three, five, uh, uh, five players here. Uh, enterprises, and this trust company. There's a bank A, this is a British bank. And there's bank C, and there's bank B. Then I explain. Here, this uh, bank A will entrust this uh, trust company to create a trust uh, plan. So because you have the, this trust plan, then this British bank will put, will give money to trust company. This is called trust fund, not credit. It's different. Because the money is given to trust company, not to give an uh, uh, enterprise. So this trust fund. Then trust company make credit to, to, to these enterprises. So this is called uh, trust loans, not bank loans. Okay? So money go from bank A to uh, to, to the enterprises. But that is just a very small part of the trick. And this bank, uh, via this so-called trust project, uh, give inject value to enterprises. Then, in return, they got uh, trust beneficiary rights, this bridge bank. But this is just a bridge bank. Immediately, this bridge bank sell this TBR to Bank B, to Bank B. Then bank B put money into this uh, bridge bank. So you lend money out, then you get money back, so you disappear. So this is why this is called bridge bank is gone, right? So the bank B actually is the real provider of the money. But there's some dangers. If, if this uh, uh, enterprise cannot repay the money, then this bank B will be in trouble. But actually, this bank B has no close connection with enterprises. Bank C actually is a, a usual credit to these uh, enterprises. Just because some restrictions, Bank C cannot put credit, give money to enterprises. So they invite all these parts to join in this adventure. This Bank B, after getting this TBR, it sold this TBR to Bank C at the end of the day of this TBR. So, because you sold the money to Bank C, the Bank C give you money. So Bank B is safe, because Bank C actually is safeguarding the interest of Bank B. You get, it definitely you can get money from Bank C, unless this Bank C will collapse. But usually it's not very likely. But because now the Bank C holds the key, so the repayment by enterprises will go to Bank C. So, this is the whole process. Everything is okay, right? But previous very simple transaction, actually from uh, here, there, there, but I, there's cost. You cannot do this. So you go wrong about it. You invite five guys to uh, complete one transaction. So you put this, this chain of uh, claim of uh, and, uh, liability very, very long. I think uh, Adele mentioned this. Okay, for, 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 for this bank, its uh, uh, assets is not bank credit. Its liability is not deposit. So the, actually, the eventual, the final investor is over there. The final use of money is over there, right? 
So we make this chain of uh, create very, very long discrete programs because time constraint, I will not elaborate. Then, why, why we have a, sorry, <laughs> I cannot privatize to explain. I will do this one by one, but no, I cannot do that. This is the whole picture. Uh, when I'm reading Adele's paper, I feel he, 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 he talked about very deeply on different uh, uh, sections or, 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 or fractions. I want to combine them together. What is the whole picture? This is a, uh, uh, this is a foreign exchange market, and uh, this is the People's Bank of China, manipulation, so so. I will not explain. Here, I want just to, to, to mention one important fact. In the previous uh, graph, you see this B deposit go to this bank. That's what. Now we have a very quite developed capital market, and you also have a shadow banking activities. Banks and shadow banking activities actually are divided by functions, not necessarily divided by institutions. They make together just one thing because they are doing different things, so we make some uh, division. So this time around, money, M1, YB, will not only go to banks, but also to shadow banking systems. We will also go to capital market. The seed is the guy who will get all the money. Okay, so because we have a other part of a financial section developing, so of course, uh, uh, credit is just part of what is financial use. We are uh, uh, wealth magic products. Uh, we have uh, shares, bonds, and so on, so on. Uh, quite complicated and so on. What I'm trying to say is that the key is M1. If the central bank controls M1, so it's difficult to create more financial instruments because, uh, you see, uh, deposit plus WMP uh, and, and plus share and bonds go to the capital market should be equal to M1. So in China, there's competition between commercial banks and other uh, financial institutions. Whenever there's more uh, wealth management products sell, sell to, sold to, to other, uh, to, to the uh, investors, then banks will, will, will feel uh, sort of a competition pressure. They, they are losing, they are losing deposits, so they are competing with each other. So I think the key is still the M1. If you can control M1, I think eventually you can control asset prices and so on. And uh, we talk about uh, people inject lots of money to certain uh, financial assets. Then I always will ask when those guys who sell these financial assets, they get money, what they are going to do with the money they get, right? If you use money to buy products, then the whole economy, real economy will be running. But the trouble is sometimes they will hold money. They will not use money to buy anything. They will use money to buy most liquid, liquid assets, or they just hold cash, put cash in jaw, in, in safe in China. They did that. There, there are some, some news just recently. Some guy was, uh, was, uh, was uh, committed crime. Then police go to their houses. They found millions of hundreds of millions of uh, cash in their 
in, in the in under the bed. That's since heaven in China. So a lot of money go there. If the money will not go there, the money go to banks. Uh, it's a sort of very liquid, very liquid assets. Okay, my time's up. Okay, just give you one thing. Here, this is China's financial in, intensity. I like this word, intensity. Uh, the red line, the red line's credit or GDP ratio, approaching 200 percent. And the, uh, this is a, a, a blue line is a, a credit over GDP ratio, more than 100 percent. But I will make one correction. Social finance is a flow variable, not stock. So social finance is something like 30 percent at this moment. But very high. If you, you put them together, could be extremely high. So this is problem. What is problem? You can see here. This is uh, the red line. The red line is uh, sort of an index of a Chinese interest rate. Uh, sorry, uh, profit rate. The industrial profit rate, quite high. Then in recent years, it dropped quite dramatically. Four. Yeah. Okay. And then you see this uh, uh, blue line, the weighted, the weighted interest rate. Interest rate has been increasing quite dramatically. So this line now is crossing. So if this red line falls further and the blue line higher, then according to Wexel theory, we will be in big trouble. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Youngding. A second discussant, Charles Goodhart, professor emeritus here at the LSE, and a distinguished contributor to economic policy formulation as a, a member of the staff of the Bank of England and the Monetary Policy Committee, and to economic thinking on both monetary policy and finance. Charles? Uh, thank you very much, Malcolm. Uh, is this on? Oh, good. Um, I can't compete with Yu Yongding's uh, marvelous uh, slides. I'm going to do without any. Um, I'd like to start by saying how much I agree uh, with Adair's sort of main sort of conclusions. Uh, the extraordinary increase in inequality in almost all our countries has been a major factor that has helped to drive uh, the way the macroeconomies have been working. Uh, he also pointed to the need to try and reduce imbalances. Here I'm relatively more optimistic. Um, you probably noted that Japan has gone from one of the biggest current account surplus to a very large current account deficit, drawn or, driven almost entirely by demography. And where the demography of Japan led, the demography of China <coughs> and Germany is going to follow fairly shortly on behind. And if we can get a major change in energy prices with shale gas and renewables, it could lead to a reduction in the massive profitability of the OPEC countries, all of which could mean that the major surplus countries could, within a relatively short period of time, uh, cease to be such, so that the pattern of imbalances, uh, which has caused so much pro problem over the years, uh, may decline. Uh, then he talked about the need for other macroprudential instruments, LTVs and LTIs, uh, to help add to the armory to deal with the, the problems of the uh, asset cycles. 
And finally, he talked quite a lot, correctly, uh, about housing finance. I think that one of the great disappointments to me of the, of the post-great financial crisis has been all the concentration on sort of bank regulation and the failure to realize uh, that the whole structure of housing finance uh, really needs fundamental reconsideration. So I would say it's actually more difficult um, than Adair made it out. It's looking backwards, it's very hard to see why people didn't see this particular problem arising. And I would ask those of you who worry about that to go back to a presentation that the then president of the Royal Economic Society and member of the Monetary Policy Committee, uh, Professor Steve Nickell, gave as a Keynes lecture to the British Academy, and I think it was 2005, in which he, he tried to describe why the Monetary Policy Committee was taking very little notice of the increase in housing prices. And one of the key points that he raised was that at a time of very low long-term real interest rates, you would expect asset prices to be, have risen relative to incomes. It would be the normal thing that you would expect, and therefore there was nothing particularly odd about it. Um, one thing that slightly surprised me about Adair's presentation, uh, which I find marvellous, was that he, he pulled his punches a bit at the end, because where that kind of analysis normally drives you is to say, well, if bank credit creation is so pro-cyclical, maybe we should try and change the structure so that lending to the private sector is not done on the basis of bank credit and money creation, but is done uh, through other non-bank routes, which he, 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 sort of, he didn't go that far. Um, and he also, um, which I was going to take him up on, and he also made the point um, that money creation is done by bank lending. And I would say that actually he hasn't gone far enough backwards. Because the point is that the, the real creation of access to balances and transactions balances is not when the credit is granted, but when the facility is granted. Um, let me take an example. Uh, in 2008, in Q4, there was an enormous increase in bank credit expansion. Now, why was that? It was actually because all those corporates who had facilities granted, who were frightened that their banks were in trouble, were actually utilizing the unused facilities while they could. Meanwhile, and here I speak from sort of personal experience, new facilities were being cut back dramatically. I think it was in early November that my clearing bank, who shall go be nameless, told me that my overdraft facility, which I had previously offered, indeed encouraged me to take up, of £10,000 was to be cut back without any suggestion that I might sort of ask for it otherwise to 2000 And that was being done right round the world. So in Q4 2008, the reality was that access to funding through facility creation was being cut back absolutely dramatically, while it looked as if credit creation was very high. 
Um, and it's actually the facilities. And one of the great advantages of uh, lending back, backed through bank credit creation and money creation is that through their ability to create money, banks can be enormously much more flexible than a non-bank can. Um, and that flexibility is hugely important. And I run a small farming enterprise, and I couldn't do it because this is seasonal unless I had a fairly large facility for those periods of the year when I'm run into debt. And all uh, financial arrangements uh, tend to require some initial organization which requires uh, flexible facilities. I mean, for example, if you're going to raise uh, a large bond issue or anything like that, you tend to have some kind of bridging loan. You tend to have to have underwriting so that if things go wrong, a flexible bank can step into the bargain. And the flexibility that the banking system can provide uh, in the whole process of credit creation uh, through their ability to create money, which enables them to do this whole process of facilities and the rest of it, is an area, I think, which is, um, which is under-recognized. And I would uh, argue that the one point where I would differ from Adair is that effectively the access to funds is created not when the credit is actually granted, but when the facility is granted. And that actually leads one to a, a slightly different view of certain aspects of history and certain aspects of the way that the financial system should work. So that's all I've got. But it was a splendid lecture. Thank you very much. Any time you want to do a professorial lecture, you're very welcome to come. They're very good indeed. <laughs> well, that sounds like a good invitation. We're going to go until 10.25. I am going to ask for uh, questions uh, from the audience. Uh, Adair, I hope you won't mind if I wait and give you time to uh, come back uh, later on rather than wait after the discussions. Okay, questions from the floor. Could you quickly identify yourself and pose your question very succinctly? This gentleman in the fourth row. Uh, Eric Lonergan from M&G. First of all, thank you for a superb lecture and for uh, the superb comments subsequently. Uh, if I could try and keep this as brief as, brief as possible. So, so I have huge sympathy with what you were saying about what seems to me that we should actually be printing money directly to stimulate demand. We're trying to use the financial system to stimulate demand, and that's causing huge amounts of problems. Could I go right back to your philosophy and ask you about the definition of money here, though, because I think a lot of the intellectual confusion is caused by the fact that... and possibly we're guilty of it here as well, we're calling two very different things money. Um, we're calling deposits, which Yu Yongding rightly called them deposits, and we're talking about the monetary base, which I think is what people think of actually as money. Nobody can default on a, a £20 note, but a deposit can be defaulted upon. Now, this confusion is that when central banks want to create money, what we should be doing is empowering the central bank to transfer cash to the private sector to stimulate consumption, as you rightly point out. Friedman believed it. Ben Bernanke wrote about it. If you look at the original account, we should just be doing that. And Because the problem is bigger than just credit creation. We're actually messing around with asset prices all the time, and we're doing exactly the same thing again because we're using bond yields, we're using equity markets. Could you please come to your Sorry. question? Okay, so, well, that's, that's a my question. 
I think there's, there's sort of question Comment? there. Okay. Let me uh, take uh, this question from the person Thanks. Control. Joe Mitchell, uh, University of West England. Um, a number of uh, academic authors have... Um, consistently made the points that Adair Turner made, I'm thinking of people like Basil Moore, um, Minsky and so on, and have been ignored essentially and sidelined. Policymakers and textbooks have consistently denied this um, money-creating uh, process. So my first part of the question is, why do you think that was? Very quickly related to that, people like, I'm thinking of Wynne Godley, uh, were watching closely um, the balance sheets in the US and highlighted very clearly exactly what the problem was and predicted the crisis. Again, they were almost completely ignored. Um, so what, why were the people saying the correct things not listened to? Okay, I'm going to take one more question, which was this one, and then roll. Thank you. Uh, John Dye from Ruffer. Um, just taking um, some of some of Adair Turner's uh, slides together, I mean, are, are there not significant negative externalities to using interest rates as a, as a stabilisation policy? I mean, not least in, in, the, in the long term. And if that's right... Um, then what should interest rates monetary policy be, be targeted at, if anything? What is the right role for, for pure monetary policy as distinct from uh, fiscal policy? Thank you. Adair, would you like to... Well, let me uh, comment first of all on the first and the third together, because they are actually linked, and they're linked, I think, also to Charles's challenge. Have I been willing to go to the logical end point of my analysis? Because some people think that the logical end point of my analysis is to be in the same position as Irving Fisher and Henry Simons, who supported the Chicago Plan in 1935, which is, and, and Friedman in his 1948 article, which is 100% reserve banking. I, you, 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 you stop the money multiplier. Bank, banks you know, literally just have deposits, but those deposits are simply claims on M0. Uh, and you, you do your credit through the rest of the system, and therefore you are you, you essentially manage nominal demand uh, through uh, the the unfunded fiscal deficits, the creation of fiat money, rather than through the interest rate, rather than trying to do it through asset prices, etc. I mean, we we are undoubtedly in a situation at the moment where, ironically, given the way we run policy at the moment, when we get a severe post-2008 debt overhang and depressionary effects, the only way we know how to deal with them at the moment is fundamentally to encourage people through low interest rates and through asset price increases um, to take out more credit again and to go forward on the next step of it. So very interesting figures. I I, I talked about the, the leverage shift from the private to the public. Um, you, all we need to know then is to shift it back the other way. Very interesting chart in the OBR response to the budget yesterday, which shows private credit uh, from now on going up. Um, I worry as to whether I'm being radical enough. I have a set of answers to that, um, uh, which I won't go through now. Uh, the, 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 other, the second point, why was this thinking sidelined? In my Stockholm lecture, I had a, a section called The Strange Amnesia of Modern Economics. What is interesting is it sort of gets sidelines in post-war Keynesianism as well as in sort of post-1970s new classicism. You know, even post-war Keynesianism in its ISLM framework is fundamentally thinking about the economy in, in, in a sense of a set of big flow aggregate bank intermediation 
uh, in China, which are very re reminiscent of the hugely complicated things that developed uh, in the Western financial system before the crisis. I think we have to get to grips within what happened to the financial system before the crisis with two things that blew up its size. One is an increase in real economy leverage, I, the size of the contracts that exist between the financial system in total as a consolidated entity and the real economy. And what I was mainly talking about was the problems that that created. But another set of problems can be created if we take, as you said, a relatively simple, you know, there are three fundamental principles in a, 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 a principals, ALs, I meant, you know, in a particular credit relationship, and we split it into, you know, 25 points of the intermediation chain. I think one of the things which we realized before the crisis is that gross flows and gross aggregates within the financial system matter. Because the more that you've done that, the more that you've created points of vulnerability along the chain, the more that you've created the possibility for all sorts of principal agent relationships upon the chain, and the, the more that you have created a complete lack of transparency as to how many claims there are and what quality they were. So the fact that those things net out at the aggregate level is no reassurance. The gross uh, complexity of the system matters as well as uh, the size of the system vis-a-vis -vis the real economy. Thank you very much. Well, I think that Adair Turner with this very fine presentation and the, uh, the panelists have produced a very deep session on uh, financial capitalism and financial stability. Please join me in thanking them for this session.